Welcome, everyone, to POV Crypto, the only podcast that both Bitcoiners and Ethereans listen to. I'm David Hoffman, here with my buddy Christian. Christian, how you doing? Doing great, man. Like, life is beautiful these days. Even, even amongst all the chaos in the real world, I feel like the crypto world and the Bitcoin world is so freaking zen. I've been thankful for a while, but I feel especially thankful these days. Yeah, the the crypto bubble is not a bad bubble to be inside of, especially during times of COVID where you can't really go outside and and do much. Like there's endless entertainment in the crypto world. Like every single week, like it's like, oh man, what a week. Except like, I think Matt Walsh says says this on the On the Brink podcast. He goes, oh, what a week. And then for the last three weeks, he's been saying like, I know I've been saying what a week for the past like, you know, two months but oh man what a week and like that is absolutely right like jesus christ what a fucking week yeah well i mean i think the what a fucking week it has fully expanded beyond crypto although i mean actually it's been pretty crazy outside of crypto for for a while now but last week was a doozy i know in particular you are living with a man who really took full advantage of that so i'm kind of curious what's been your purview on the whole wall street bets um gme and you know all the degening happening in the traditional market yeah i think it's a really it's it's going to be something that takes time to process and understand for for me and for everyone for the whole world i think the really just the takeaway message is that like retail, especially with like, you know, the $600 stimmy checks and the $1,200 stimmy checks and the coming checks, like retail is a force to be reckoned with at this point. Because like, you know, Robinhood for better or for worse gave them the financial tools they needed to be a, a big player. Like retail, like each individual retail player doesn't move the needle, but like retail as a whole are now overpowering hedge funds, right? And importantly, they are paying attention to markets in ways that hedge funds can't or won't uh, pay attention to or think about. Um, they're, they're consuming and interpreting information in ways that you know hedge funds will not be able to to get to that level of, of retail. Um, you know, retail is just like unlocked. They have certain capabilities or interests that hedge funds just won't be able to to capture. And also now, because of Money Printer Go Burr, these players are capitalized. And not only because of Money Printer Go Burr, but because Wall Street Bets, like all, all those deep, the deep people in Wall Street Bets that pay attention to Wall Street Bets for the financial opportunities, the ones that are moving the needle, all are super fucking capitalized now. They all just made a fuck ton of money. So not only do they know that they are movers and shakers as a collective unit, but now they, they were movers and shakers before they just made a fuck ton of money on GME. And now they know, understand both that they are movers and shakers and they have 10, like a hundred times more cash than they did previously. Like we, yep. th- this is just the beginning of this story. Yeah, no, I, I actually fully agree. And over the weekend, we saw a bunch of like billboards going up, like promoting Wall Street bets. I don't know if you saw on uh, Twitter, but Popeyes was running a promoted ad for attendees uh, with cash tag GME, cash tag AMC, and some of the other, uh, you know, kind of meme coins or meme, meme uh, stocks that were being pumped by the Wall Street bets crew. So, um, yeah. You're you're exactly right. The this group, which in my opinion, like okay, let's say you know 
80% of them are just people, freeloaders who are on Reddit who are just, you know, aping into stuff. But 20% are doing some very, very legitimate research, you know, like finding out that this opportunity existed with GME, you know, it, it, it required someone who understood what is happening, right? It sounds like deep fucking value, the Redditor that found the the gme opportunity like they're not a pleb like they they are a relatively sophisticated retail investor yeah yeah i would i would agree with that and it's interesting to see like the similarities in culture behind like shitcoin ape culture in the crypto world kind of find itself in the legacy world i would like to say that like we exported that culture from the crypto world to the wall street bets world but apparently Wall Street bets is kind of anti-crypto, anti as, as one would expect, because like you know most people's perception of crypto is from the 2017 ICO mania, which is ripe, ripe full of scams. Um, but like there's like an, a similar culture behind like these Wall Street Wall Street bets apes and all the shitcoiners out there. Uh, and I would include myself in the shitcoiners. I own shitcoins. I trade shitcoins. Um, uh, and shitcoins is a Bitcoiner word. Word. If I was on a, an Ethereum podcast, I'd be calling them DeFi tokens. Um, but like these cultures are similar, right? And and I'm, I'm kind of like bullish on that resonance between these two cultures because I think our community is going to meld in the future. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there was any group of people who are more excited about what happened last week than bitcoiners and people who are into DeFi, you know individually they were both sides were extremely excited because i think you know at least for bitcoiners we saw this as like wow this is like a come to light moment for a lot of people that were anti-crypto who <laughs> learned through experience why crypto why censorship resistance and decentralization is important yeah, and I think we should go into why Bitcoiners are stoked versus why DeFi people are stoked, because I think there might be a, a difference there that we should suss out. I'm my gut take before before talking to you. We haven't really talked about this until now. Is that you know Bitcoiners could really take this, and perhaps like the the, the deep Bitcoiners, like the Pierre Richards or the or the Bitsteins, would take this to talk about like the systemic risk behind risky behavior due to a surplus of fiat where like the DeFi people are like, you know, Robin hood, you can turn off, but Uniswap, you can't turn off, you know um, you know, DeFi fixes this because they're un- it's unstoppable code. Whereas Bitcoiners are more per, I would think would be more along the lines of like, this is uh, the reper- the natural repercussions of a fiat based system. This is like what happens when there's too much cash injected into the economy. People take crazy risks, and then all of a sudden, uh, these crazy risks explode. And then there's systemic there's systemic risks because of how the economy the economy is set up. Like, how do Bitcoiners think about this? Let's start there. Well, yeah, I would say that that's like that's like what Bitcoiners would describe as like the cause of a lot of these incentives. But I think what Bitcoiners were excited about was the fuck the man mentality, the let's burn this all fucking down mentality. Let's destroy the suits. Like that's what the Bitcoiners were excited about because that's what Bitcoin is about is fucking destroying the suits, fucking taking down the man and taking power away. And um, I th- again, I, I think that a lot of people in the the DeFi bet, or sorry, the the Wall Street bets uh, community, uh, they. You know, they were radicalized to some degree because they were just, you know, some plebs trying to make money. They're on this Reddit page. You know, they obviously saw what they believe to be a fair market opportunity. And then they also saw the news 
all the companies that all the brokerages, all the companies behind the trading effectively turn on them, you know, as soon as it wasn't profitable for the big hedge funds. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Uh, one thing I've always said is like in the, we, in bankless, we use the metaphor of the bankless nation, right? This nation of online people. And I, I one of the frequent things I, I say is there are no ties in the bankless nation. The bankless nation does not wear ties. Uh, ties are the symbol of the oppressor. It's kind of, kind of an inside joke that I have. Um, that's funny. Yeah. It, they are. Um, fuck ties. Yeah. Ties are fucking dumb. Who the fuck wears ties? Only acceptable ties are bolo ties. Are those the ones with, with the strings? Yeah, I don't have an opinion on those, except except I know that they come from the South and they're cowboy, cowboy stuff. Yeah, uh-huh. um, you know, I, I, I think like they're is... ironic. Why are they ironic? I don't know. Because <laughs> because you are not a cowboy. Because if I wear them, it's ironic <laughs> as fuck. <laughs> there you go. There's the irony. <laughs> oh man, the the. So what do you think is like, what do you think? So I picked up my roommate from the airport when he was, he was gone for like during this, this, um, all this GameStop debacle. And so I, I pick him up and the first thing I say to him is like, dude, everything is totally different now. Like the world's a different place as a result of this, like GME short squeeze. Like, would you say, would you say that's true? Yeah, I would say the world is different, but Hunter in particular, he's a fiat apologist big time. So he, oh, yeah. he went from radicalized to rationalizing what went down pretty quickly. So I thought that that was kind of interesting. Uh, so like the, the rationalization that I got was that, you know, Robin Hood didn't succumb to some like phone call from Melvin Capital. Like that's not what happened. What really happened was that there was systemic risk as a result of like Robin Hood being able to fulfill their brokerage commitments and they didn't have enough capital. And so like, it wasn't this like collusion between, between like Melvin Capital and Robin Hood, although there is allegedly still a plausible, that, that's still a plausible scenario. But what the more, the, the alleged reason why Robin Hood only allowed selling but not buying was that buying required like an intensive amount of capital that robin hood didn't have available to them and so they had to stop buying um and so robin like, hood also recapitalized heavily today did they yeah they raised millions of dollars from existing uh from existing uh shareholders and they are seeking debt financing as well so i mean there could be some truth to that um mm-hmm. but with that being said, you know, I'm a Fidelity customer and a Robinhood customer and Fidelity didn't freeze my shit, but Robinhood right. froze my shit everywhere. So maybe Robinhood is like more susceptible to degen behavior, whereas Fidelity has a lot yeah. more like maybe, you know, older, older generation of customers as well as more uh, institutional customers. But I mean, it was interesting that all of the, all of the products that shut down were effectively like the free millennial products. And it, mm. it wasn't really like the, it wasn't the fidelities. It wasn't the Charles Schwab's. It wasn't the more kind of, uh, you know, boomer oriented brokerage accounts right. and, and products. Right. Um, so we, we had the Winklevoss on uh, today. We were, we were recording with them. Episode comes out tomorrow, uh, which is going to be Tuesday of this week. Um, and, the, and they were talking about how like Robin Hood as a product is fundamentally broken in the same way like all the other social media products are broken where like if it's free then you are the product right and so robin hood doesn't charge commissions on trades and you know perhaps that's some like revolutionary democratizing of finance but then the other side of the things is that you know you are actually just like the sheep getting cheered 
Like the only people that can really benefit from Robinhood are a, the people that couldn't have signed up with a TD Ameritrade account or some like more formal brokerage. And actually those fees would have actually really just cut into what they were able to do. And so if, therefore if Robinhood was their only choice and then they never ever trade it, right? If you, if you are trading on Robinhood, you are just like paying for giving out free money to the brokerage. But if you buy and hold that, like that's the only viable thing that Robinhood can really do is like buying and holding. But that's not who these Wall Street bets DGENs were. They are they are apers who ape in and out of position all the time. Um, but apparently, like there's this brokerage that pays Robinhood for their order flow, and that's like that's like if you're Facebook, that's like the advertisers paying you Citadel. Yeah, there it's like yeah. advertisers are paying Facebook for the views. It's the same thing. Citadel is forty percent of Robinhood's actual revenue and citadel owns a significant portion of Belvin capital ah yeah that's the connection yeah i'm i'm so excited for like the postmortem to come out on all this and like you know you're gonna get it we're, we're seeing both the populist left and the populist right and an issue and so like I, i'm i think there's going to be an extensive investigation from most multiple different fronts so like we're gonna be sussing this thing out for a while yeah, no, I mean, very few things bring the right and left together these days. And mm-hmm. surprisingly, you saw folks like uh, AOC uh, from the left and then Donald Trump Jr. on the right tweeting about this. Uh, and so mm-hmm. it was absolutely a uniting factor. And, and I think to big And also and- Dave Portnoy was the one that made that tweet, right? So like this thing is going up all over the place. Oh, Yeah. I've I've never had more respect for Dave Portnoy, although he is uh, a weak-handed uh, son of a bitch. But uh, yeah, I mean, what was I going to say? In general, like the fact that the kind of the man or the suits versus the plebs kind of narrative played out last week, and we saw the political appetite for that debate made me really bullish for the idea of open source financial technology moving forward because obviously both sides care about taking care of the little guy or at least they posture that way and if we can align you know this crypto revolution with that better and we can hope like open people's eyes to the inherent fairness that comes from open source crypto cryptographically enforced tech financial tech i feel like that is that was the biggest bullish indicator or signal that i got from this entire kind of play you know play by play yeah yeah that that is interesting like the populist conversation i think is is kind of going to be the one of 2021 because what is the left other than just like the party that succumbed to like the the left populism and then what is the right other than like a party that got taken over by populism on the right, right? Like populism is in, like regardless. Um, it's just pick your flavor. And the funny thing is that the current administration is like not populist at all. It's like it's like the suits from both sides kind of coming together to some degree. Yeah. Yeah. So all the all the Bernie bros who were super bummed that like Bernie lost the election, that was like kind of their their critique of of biden was that like you know he's not he's not anything other than like the continuation of the establishment although i would say that biden is doing pretty populist stuff like stimmy checks populist um i would say biden's relative well yeah i would say biden's relatively populist at least he's more much more so than obama yeah but 
Obama was kind of like the last bastion of the old world. You know, Trump was the the insane populist right. And then, I mean, I think that Biden was just the anti-Trump candidate, but a lot of his party is right motivated, or sorry, is uh, kind of populist left motivated. And I mean, I, I personally think that stimmy checks are uh, are politically palatable on both sides of the aisle. Um, maybe that's just, that's the populist side of things. But I think what that's really showing is that people are hurting. Like the mm-hmm. average person is hurting really bad. And a lot of the people on these Wall Street bets uh, accounts that were aping into this stuff, they they literally were aping with the last dollars they had because they've been put into that position where they have no more job. They have, you know, they have all this time on their hands. They're losing funds and, you know, their back's against the wall. They might as well try to do something, you know? Mm-hmm. That's what Dimitri Kafinas on his Hidden Forces podcast, that's what he talks about a lot. While like there's he I think what he tries to identify is like there's just this like destituteness about people who aren't anyone below the age of boomers, right? Like as you get younger and younger, people are becoming less and less like optimistic and more and more cynical about their future financial situation. Uh, and so they're doing more and more yellowing because like, what the fuck else do they have to lose? Like either they yellow all of their savings into GME and try and retire, or they're working for the rest of their lives and they're working the rest of their lives. Like regardless, like, uh, like uh, yeah. o- only, only a YOLO can save them from like the nine to five until they're like 68, five, eight, 68 years old or something. No, absolutely. And that, that I would say that's where the Bitcoin like kind of argument comes in. Like this is the obvious end result of the incentives that are created by fiat money and the stimmy checks and the printing and all this kind of stuff and the devaluating of the base currency. You know, this is this is the end result is those who have assets keep getting richer. Those who don't have assets lose more and more of their ability to acquire assets. And uh, those without assets, you know, are more and more destitute and taking more and more irrational behavior. Um, What I saw was really disheartening was just the like the complete apologizing of the shorters and of the hedge fund from all of the financial media, like across the Mm -hmm. board, the financial Mm -hmm. media had one narrative and one narrative only. And I think that even today on CNBC, it was like, there's a bad guy and a good guy in, in the GME story and the short and the short head fund were the good guys. Like that was published on CNBC today. Like that's insane to me. Like, wow. Just, I feel like, I feel like the media is really showing its cards. Yeah, totally. Like, you know, CNBC more or less one part news, one part, you know, background entertainment for the people that like to pay attention to money and markets. But that's like on a good day, on a bad day, it's a tool to control, to control information, just like every other form of media out there. And like, there's not some like secret basement cabal, like determining what goes on CNBC. It's just short like local personal friendships and connections and incentives and so if like all of the hedge funds are who are local to people who are going on to cnbc and interviewing on cnbc and basically advertising for cnbc if all those people are hurting like well cnbc is going to be on the side of those people right they're the people that are proximate and wealthy right that that's just how this works um and, uh, and I feel like that that we can extend this to crypto as well. It's like, thank God crypto is such like a media heavy ecosystem because if we didn't have our own PR and our own like media entities, like, you know, like what you're doing at Bitcoin Magazine and what I'm doing at Bankless, if we didn't have any of that, 
like we'd be fucked. You would have no narrative control at all. It would be at the whims of, you know, the legacy media institutions who we know can't get anything right about crypto. You know, to be honest, Bitcoin and crypto kind of made me start to realize that everything that is coming out of the uh, the legacy system and, and the traditional media is pretty much all akin to FUD. Like if the level of research that they're doing on Bitcoin and Ethereum equates to the level of research that they're doing on any other nuanced topic that they're covering, <laughs> like all of it is garbage. Like, and the only mm-hmm. reason we can identify it in the Ethereum and Bitcoin space is because we are effectively Bitcoin and Ethereum experts. Mm-hmm. Now, take that with a grain of salt. Neither of us are technical, yeah. but you know, for whatever it's worth, you know, we are expert enough to like know what is FUD and what is like real information. Um, and mm-hmm. like, I don't have that information about any other subject that the news is covering. But again, like the one thing that's constant is it's pretty much the same reporters, editors, and staff that's running, you know, these news decks across all subjects. So my assumption is that, okay, well, it's all garbage. I'm reminded of that comic where it's a two panel comic and there's this massive, massive like boot. And then there's people who are carrying that boot in both in, in both sides of the panel. And on one side, it's communism. And it's just like dreary and, and desperate. And on the other side, it's capitalism. And it's the same boot with the same people supporting that boot, except there's like circus animals and like entertainment going around. And like, there's still the boot there, like squashing all these people. But at least they have like this circus to like entertain them along the way. I, I, was, I was reminded of that this week. Yeah. Is that capitalism, though? Or is that just uh, better propaganda? Like, doesn't the boot kind of represent just like repression no matter what? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Top down, top down control based off of the wealthy privileged elite. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, Hunter, Hunter and I are in this group with all of our fraternity brothers. Um, and we, you know, they, they talk you know, stocks most of the time. And I'm just the token Bitcoiner in there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I received kinda... the same commentary on the other side of things where like Hunter says, you know, oh, we're talking to- stocks. And then Christian always just comes in with his Bitcoin comment. <laughs> I mean, pretty much like I, I mean, you, you, once you're into crypto, like you don't give a shit about stocks that much. And I'm like way more into stocks than you. So mm-hmm. <laughs> that just shows how not into stocks I am. But um yeah, so uh, you know, I'm I'm in this group. I'm always like kind of like dropping bombs about Bitcoin, um, and there's you know sometimes there's people attached to it and, and kind of remin- like uh, can can uh, can see my points. And a lot of times there's just a lot of eye rolling kind of going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm kind of curious, like what's what's been like the narrative that you've been spinning around this, right? Like obviously your agenda is more around like you know showing value in DeFi and this is why mm-hmm. the DeFi infrastructure is valuable and, and meets the need. Um, you know, how are you kind of like addressing, uh, you know, the pain that the, uh, the, the wall street bets, uh, cohort is feeling. The, the thing I've, I've been thinking about is that, you know, apparently there is this potential for this systemic collapse of the banking and, and payment rail system, because if, if, um, Citadel, can't fulfill their obligations because Melvin Capital went bankrupt and there's all this other stuff that like, if you want to know more about what I'm, what I'm trying to reference, you need to do your own research because I can't regurgitate it right here and now. But apparently there's like a bunch of systemic risk. If Melvin Capital goes tits up, then so does uh, the brokerage that is for our facilitating these trades. And so 
you know, Hunter, my roommate, who's now this the exemplar, just like uh, equities guy in this in this episode of POV Crypto. Uh, he, but hey, can like, I just give Hunter credit? Like Hunter played GME perfect. He called yeah. GME weeks ago in our chat. Weeks, yeah. I ignored yeah, it, right. but it wasn't until everything like the fireworks. I was like, holy shit! But I mean, yeah. dude, he nailed it, man. Yeah, he, he really did. It. Um, and so like, I was talking to him about this where like, if there is this systemic risk thing where like, if Melvin capital collapses, then Citadel collapses, then other brokerages collapse. Like if that is true, like, holy shit, our financial system is so incredibly fragile. If like a bunch of wall street bet YOLOers just purchase a stock and that collapses the financial system, our financial system deserves to get like collapsed. Like, fuck, like that cannot be our financial system. That is our financial system, bro. That is our, yeah, so, right. So Ansel Lindner, my co-host for FedWatch, made a really, really great example of like trying to like understand from a blockchain perspective how like the current financial system stack works. And the way that um, he, so I don't know if you've been paying attention at all uh, with the repo markets. Do you, Are you familiar with the repo markets and like the turmoil that's been going down since before Rona with the repo markets? Right. Yeah. We've talked about that a few times, but I don't know if there's anything recent that I've been paying attention to. Yeah. It's because they're not covering it. But so, you know, what Ansel uh, uh, kind of uh, connected the repo markets to, he's like, the repo markets are like the base level blockchain, right? So when the repo markets clear every single night, that's like blocks are clearing on the blockchain and everything that we're dealing with are on higher levels. That's like level two, layer three, layer four, right? We're not dealing with like the base level blockchain of the, the 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 legacy financial system, right? So if you were to like say, okay, the repo markets, that's how all the banks and all the massive players that have access to the Fed window clear their debts at the end of, or clear their books at the end of each day, like that's the blockchain. The blockchain has not been clearing by itself without intervention of like the one master node in the system mm-hmm. since before Rona, so like if you can imagine like there's this you know blockchain that's run that's like the underlying infrastructure of the entire traditional system and all the big banks are like master nodes and there's one mega master node that's the Fed all of the nodes are broken except for the Fed and the Fed is the one that's pushing things along clearing blocks making sure that it's still going so like the the base foundation is already broken it's it's being completely supplemented by the fed by the singular master node that's keeping things rolling like the the, like the blocks are not propagating by themselves so now we're just continually seeing the upstream effects of that brokenness yeah so like there's a there's a dam and there's just like the fed is just like you know holding up the dam right but like the thing the last time we talked about this on the on on this podcast was i posed the questions like well why can't the fed just keep on doing that like what's what's to stop them just to keep on just doing what they're doing and just manually clearing blocks like that manually clearing blocks seems to be working why can't they just keep on doing that well we're seeing the issues arise upstream right so like they're papering it over uh kind of on the base layer but that brokenness is is kind of like showing its ugly face um, time and time again in other places where they don't expect it, right? So they don't know where where the issue is going to like kind of like rear its ugly head until it happens, and then they have to like paper over it, make sure it's okay, and like sometimes it takes narrative manipulation and all this other kind of like 
you know, stuff that we're, that we're seeing around like reprimanding the Reddit traders and calling them out and like talking to every single brokerage and making sure they put certain limits around certain stocks. And like, they're constantly playing catch up to try to get ahead. And I mean, it's just not sustainable. Like, yeah, they can do it. They can kick the can for a while, but you know, ultimately it's just going to blow up in their face. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty crazy. I don't know. It does create massive fragility. Like we just saw. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I, I kind of have a grasp on it. I can't really talk too much more about it because like I, I just don't know the inner inner working details of this. But like it all seems to make sense. But like, is this just like? But so why when when repo markets aren't clearing, what is what is that? What does that mean? Is there just like people just don't have the cash to facilitate the their commitments? Because I thought well, we had I mean, too much cash. Well, that's that's the exact problem because interest rates are nothing. There's no incentives to lend it out unless there's just insane amount of assurances that you that you're not gonna you know that the risk isn't gonna blow up in your face so i mean again like the the foundation like if you were to say like the base blockchain of the current financial system is already completely fucked we're operating three or four levels above that and like imagine if you're an ethereum world where all the insurances that are brought to you by the ethereum blockchain no longer can you know, right. serve that you're operating on the l3 or an l4 um mm-hmm. and it the ui seems to work but on right. the back end when it's trying to like clear onto the blockchain it's just not doing it right like eventually mm-hmm. it's just going to kind of like those issues just stack up right that's crazy to think about so th- i try to bring that- it to the sorry i try to like comp- I, I like ansel's comparison to a blockchain just because that's what we're right. all familiar with right yeah we're not right actually i can, familiar I can with picture that in my other head. system works but yeah, if you were to think of like how you would want Ethereum's ecosystem work, how you want Bitcoin's mm-hmm. ecosystem work, you know, and then how the current system is working, like it's pretty obvious that there's some major issues. And again, like these issues in the repo markets were happening months before Rona, right? right? right. So like this has mm-hmm. been like this has been baked in for a long time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And presumably not going anywhere either. Um you want, do you want to pivot to, to people coming into crypto or do you, you have more to, t- more to say? Sure. Well, I mean, I think it's a great pivot because like the masses are waking up to these issues, like, and maybe they don't understand the issues from like a first principles perspective, but they know something is wrong. And we're just seeing more and more celebrities, more and more big wigs, like, mm-hmm. you know, rep, uh, I guess just understanding the, uh, the Bitcoin and the crypto uh, pitch. And, you know, we're, again, we're seeing guys like, you know, Russell Kuhn, who are like big time Bitcoiners right. to right. guys like Gene Simmons, who are, you know, <laughs> just tipping their toes. And like, I just bought some Bitcoin and Ripple, like, you know, so <laughs> we're seeing the whole gamut. Yeah. See, we're seeing Soldier Boy and come into the space and and start to mint nfts i thought it, i thought it was a, a nice sign of maturity when soldier boy came in and he was like yo should i make my own currency and like all of the ethereum people were like no don't do that don't make your own currency make an nft do nfts instead and then funnily enough uh, what's his face the guy from tron the tron guy i can't remember his name justin um, justin sun he was like come and mint your soldier boy token on tron <laughs> i thought i thought that juxtaposition was pretty funny um and, and interestingly mark cuban you kids are figuring it, out money a little bit yeah sure um mark cuban also came in with a massive uh, tweet thread talking about the comparisons between DeFi and this whole uh cme gamestop debacle um so 
like and like one one thing I keep on seeing is like everyone's trying to call make top signals, which annoys the fuck out of me. Um, mainly because I don't want it to be the top. Um, but like wait, they're saying top signals in, for crypto. Top signal like Gene Simmons is buying Bitcoin and Ethereum. Like that's a top signal, right? No, like Soldier they, Boy. They need to in. readjust. They need to readjust their mindset. This is just a bigger bubble. Okay, <laughs> we're yes, not the top. Yes, <laughs> yes. Thank you. Like the the top signals are going to be ten x as large as they yeah. were last cycle. We need way dumber celebrities <laughs> putting way more money in first. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. That makes, that makes me feel better. Um, yeah. Anyways, lots of people, lots of people getting exposure. Um, the Winklevoss twins are, are, they're coming on bank list to talk about their CNBC interview that they did. And, and, you know, people, people are, ta- are, are talking about this and, and, or the, the whole GameStop debacle and like crypto is just like one hop away from that. Yeah. Well, I mean, the thing is, is like Bitcoiners are like Bitcoin whenever people are talking about this GME thing, but like, so is the mainstream media, like the mainstream media, they're talking about Bitcoin and crypto, like they're bringing it up in the same breath all the time and like usually mm-hmm. in negative light. But I think that this whole uh, GameStop thing also showed us pretty unequivocally that all press is good press. If you look at Robinhood's numbers, if you look at all the numbers of all the companies that were censoring transactions they all had huge download weeks. They all blew, like Robinhood was the number one app in the app store for the Apple app store um, all of last week. So I, I think it does show that all press is good press. And I mean, absolutely, even them, you know, financial pundits mentioning Bitcoin and Ethereum and crypto as, in the same breath as a bubble and speculatively uh, drawn whatever. Um, I think it's ultimately good for the price. Yeah, and good for the bubble. It's, it's one of those things where, like, if you if people on CNBC or whatever say like Bitcoin's a bubble, people like retail will pull out their wallets and be like, "How much of it can I have? <laughs> can I now, can I add to this bubble?" <laughs> and now, if they're like hedge funds are shorting Bitcoin, they're like, "Oh, really? <laughs> let's yeah, <laughs> let's squeeze those motherfuckers." Yeah, dude, I I can't remember where I saw it, but I saw like a tweet or message today about how hedge funds are shorting Bitcoin. And I'm like, oh my God, I can't get any more bullish. So uh, specifically on this point, uh, it was a zero hedge article over the weekend that cited the block cryptos graph that Mm-hmm. Uh, that showed like you know a lot of outstanding short uh, short buying pressure from hedge funds in particular, and then against Bitcoin, yeah, against Bitcoin, and I guess that zero hedge article apparently was very poorly researched. I didn't read it; I just sent it over to Hunter and that crew, and they like completely picked it apart. But <laughs> the hilarious thing is that after that, Bloomberg, CNBC, every single other person, other media, like major media company, picked up the exact same story with the exact same source. So again, shows you like how our news media works. It's you know it's kind of based on BS. Wow, wow, that's hilarious. Yeah, there is no good news anymore. There is no good. There is. Oh, there's only podcasts. Podcasts are my only trusted source of news because I can under because I know like the co-hosts. Like for Dimitri Kofinas, Hidden Forces, I trust that guy. Like I trust him to tell me the news. I don't trust anybody on the mainstream media anymore to to tell me anything that's remotely tied with reality. I trust people that put their reputations on the line to deliver good news. Yeah, I mean, like, I think we're really seeing like the the crowdsourced independent content, the, you know, independent 
contributor world like just show more and more of its merits and we're seeing like the traditional big broadcast media space just show more and more of its corruption i think that's just that's a a pretty big theme and i know that like trump getting elected was all like kind of like fake news like it kind of like brought that meme into light but i think that meme is now kind of you know it's just a general understanding across party lines like i just don't Mm -hmm. think that anyone has a a lot of respect uh for the uh the current media establishment yeah um balaji talks about how back in like the 50s and 60s there were basically three sources of truth and that's why there was never any sort of like semblance of like fake news or any sort of like distrust in the system because how would you ever gain any sort of knowledge about the system because there was only one or two people that could tell you any sort of news or information. But now in this day and age, like anyone can start a podcast, anyone can start a blog, anyone can report on their findings and like gain access to eyeballs and and ears. Uh, And so like what used to be just like three sources of information turned into like 3 million sources of information. Uh, And again, like you're not actually necessarily going to get more signal out of that, but at least you do have more optionality with your signal, which is important. Well, I would argue that the optionality creates more signal, like no traditional finance media is giving the information that Bankless and, and Bitcoin Magazine are giving about our respective kind of areas of expertise. Like. Mm-hmm. From Bitcoin Magazine's perspective, today's day and age, we're publishing Bitcoin plebs. Like we're sourcing Bitcoin plebs to publish on our website. And our CEO runs a fund with institutional investors and his institutional investors send them articles from Bitcoin Magazine saying, wow, incredible analysis. Like this is a pleb article that institutional investors are like, wow, I've never thought of Bitcoin this way. (laughs) And it's just like... Like that's like that's the world we're in. Like crowds, the power of the crowd is way way better than some top down signal. And like uh, Ansel says this a lot. He's like, hey, you know, in all of this chaos, the world is a better place. In all of this chaos, there is more free speech than there used to be. In all of this chaos, there is less censorship. And I think he's right because like, hey, we may feel like we're being censored or all this stuff, but that's just because we are so used to having so much ability to have free speech that anyone impinging on it um you know it feels like censorship but in the grand scheme of things we still have way more free speech than we ever had like the fact that i have x thousand followers on twitter and i can send out a message that's going to get thousands of impressions like that was not possible for me to do ever before in any other time period yeah yeah i guess that just that just turns the conversation to like the overton window though because like I, I have this fear in the back of my mind that like I will lose my Twitter account and like my Twitter account with my X number of thousands of followers is like one of my most valuable assets that I have. Right. And so like, fantastic. Thank you, Jack Dorsey for bestowing upon me this ability to have this speech that I have, but also like, is, do we really have freedom of speech if like Jack Dorsey can take it away from us? Like, is that what freedom of speech is? Um, and I guess, no, the answer is that's not what freedom of speech is. And I guess we could go into a technical debate about like what are rights about my Twitter account versus not. But at the end of the day, I have this very valuable asset that is in the hands of like the centralized company that could that could kill it. Um, I think that's where this like conversation around like 
platforms and media that kind of that's where that goes to is how do we turn these things into like closer something closer to protocols yeah i mean i think that is happening and i think that it's really obvious that censorship only makes the anti-fragile versions more and more lucrative um and i mean if you lost your twitter account it would suck it would suck really bad because you've built a fantastic Twitter account with an excellent following, but those people aren't going to forget who David Hoffman is, right? Like those people are going to find you somewhere else. And you already have assets that you control from like a foundational level. You have multiple RSS feeds, you have a website, like all of this stuff lacks third parties that can kind of get in the way. So yeah, Twitter is kind of like that um, town square, but like, I think, you know, guys like American Hoddle, who I know, although he's disdained in the Ethereum community, he has had his Twitter account completely destroyed and completely Mm -hmm. blocked and banned over 10 times. Every single time he spins up a new one, everyone refollows him and he just continues to go. Like he has transcended beyond like one Twitter account. Like his persona is beyond that. And he he breaks 10,000 followers repeatedly. There's a website called Hive One that kind of shows you the top influencers in both Bitcoin and Ethereum based on who else is following them. And the top 100 Bitcoin Mm -hmm. list is literally a graveyard of American hodls. It's just like American (laughs) hodl six, American hodl seven, American hodl eight. It's just a graveyard of American hodls. But like, you know, he has effectively transcended, you know, whatever his Twitter account is. And I I truly think that David Hoffman, if put in a similar situation, can do the same. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, I only know American hodl because of that. He yells and calls me bad names on Twitter. Yeah, That's he doesn't like me very much. No, he does not like me at all. He's a I toxic think... motherfucker. I can't, I can't excuse that. It's just reality. Yeah, yeah. And I think any Ethereum he doesn't really like. Either I have him blocked or he has me blocked, one of the two. Um, well, I always not? tweet you. I, I feel like I always tweet you out, and then he just blocks you immediately <laughs> as I do that. So you being blocked is because is of me. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm not too worried about missing out on that, that perfect American HODL uh, content. It is hilarious, though, in my in my opinion. Um, yeah. But yeah, let's okay. So you know, I feel like this has been a very high level conversation so far. Mm-hmm. I think it's been mm-hmm. a fantastic conversation. But let's talk about crypto a little bit more. Like, okay. what are you seeing right now? Like, how are you feeling? Like, personally, I I think that Bitcoin can either go up ten thousand dollars or can go ten thousand go down ten thousand dollars in the next seven days. Like that, all both are very much at play, in my opinion. Yeah, so it's it's I'm very wary about how far away we are both ETH and BTC from the 20 week moving average. Uh, we're very far away from those numbers. Like the ETH moving average, 20 week moving average is like $650, and the Bitcoin 20 week moving average is like, oh god, I don't even know. Uh, hang on, I'm about to pull up pull up the ETH uh, 20 week moving average. Um, yeah, pull them both up. But I mean, like while you're doing that, from my are you experience, want me to share my screen, or or do you just want me to tell it? Uh, yeah i can i can do that here give me one second i can yeah I can so, my screen. but yeah in my experience bitcoin and ethereum they earn their prices like they yes. move quickly but then they in retrospect they go back and they earn every fucking dollar of price action upwards so um mm-hmm. when i see them move up very quickly with very little kind of like price discovery in between um i generally have a gut feel that we're going to go back and earn those prices and test those levels again Oh, you think so, huh? I, I'm ready for this to be the new floor. I'm ready for $1,000 Ether and $30,000 Bitcoin to be like the new floor. 
I, I could be, I'm, I'm of positioned for, for $2,000 ether and like 50 plus thousand dollar Bitcoin. That's where I'm positioned. And the, the one thing, and so like I started this conversation off saying, I'm, you know, I'm wary as to how far away from the 20 week moving average we are yet. I'm still super bullish. And the thing that I have my eye on the most is uh, the DPI ETH chart. DPI is like the DeFi pulse index, DeFi index. So I mean, it's, it's weighting D, uh, DeFi versus ether. Uh, and it doesn't have that much price history. This, the DPI index only got started in like, um, like early November. And so the chart doesn't have much history, but there's already like this basing pattern that we are starting to break out of. And so like my, I am positioned for a DeFi summer. That is like the new all season. Well, I mean, it is February, but I feel like February is the end of winter and the beginning of summer. So like throughout the spring, I think that we're going to start seeing a lot more insane volatility. Um, Yes. to the upside in the entire crypto space but the you know kind of in these early the early part of the year again i would not be shocked if we see some downturn just because we haven't earned those prices yet and on top of that i think institutions want in at lower prices and we know that they can move the market around this these markets are shakeable yeah but they're only shakeable if you have assets to sell not if you don't if you don't have any bitcoin on the balance sheet how can you shake the market you can only shake it to the upside. I mean, you can take short positions on CME. But that doesn't mean the market's going down. That's not going to... Oh, does, does taking a short push spot down? Oh, I guess it does. I guess it kind of just depends on how everything else plays out. But again, like, yeah, you can own Bitcoin, sell it, buy a lot more cheaper too. Like that right. just because... Like, I think that big players are going to continue to push things around. Like we know that that's happening in legacy, like so they can definitely happen in crypto. I don't know. I get. I just add in the fact that money printer is going burr, and there's a lot of cash out there. Combined with the fact that like we are quote unquote inside a new paradigm with institutions that are well capitalized wanting to get Bitcoin on the balance sheet, I think any single dip just just gets bought, just like really quickly. And I think we've seen that over the last like six months. Like dips just get bought. Dips get bought hard. Yeah. So uh, what's your take on uh, Elon Musk kind of jumping into this and even doing that, that, uh, that clubhouse chat last night? Yeah, do you, I haven't gotten any of the takeaways from the clubhouse chat. The only thing I know about Elon is that like he tweeted out about GameStop and then he added Bitcoin to his bio. I don't understand why so many people are like stoked on that piece of news. Like Elon has been a Bitcoin bull. He, he just hasn't been like a Bitcoin fanatic. He, he knows about Bitcoin. He's bullish on Bitcoin. We've always known this to be true. I don't get what the new news is. Well, it was always cryptic and now it's straightforward, I guess. You're muted. I, I, I mean, that's just like, that's not, that's not news. I guess, I mean, I guess he's the world's most wealthy man. So I guess that's news, but like, it's not news. I think the bullish thing is the fact is just all the alignment with Elon Musk and Bitcoin, right? Like he is obsessed with energy production and energy storage and Bitcoin proof of work fits into that perfectly. That's like a huge part of the Bitcoin narrative. Um, So I think that that's bullish again. Like there's one thing between like Elon tweeting cryptic shit about Bitcoin and Dogecoin to him, like, you know, putting hashtag Bitcoin as the only thing in his bio. Like, I don't know how much of that was caused by, um, by michael saylor or jack dorsey but like it's pretty obvious that like 
the big players, like the the new meme warriors of crypto, like they're having an impact and things are just getting started. Um, and again, I'm going to plug the Bitcoin Tina special I just put out two weeks ago, the hardest trade, but he talks about this. Mm-hmm. He's like, we are going from Bitcoin being an illegitimate asset to being a legitimate asset. And that change is going to change the market can, like in, in ways that we don't understand yet. Um, so, I mean, from what you're saying, like we've talked about like playing the crypto cycle, selling the top, you know, getting some buying power so that way you can buy back at the bottom. Like what if that never really happens? Like why, what if every single dip gets, gets gobbled up by institutional institutions that are, you know, physically short crypto and they're trying to, you know, they're trying to, uh, uh, acquire. If that happens, then I mean, I think we're all really, really wealthy because then we just keep on selling all the way up to the top. But I guess we're only wealthy in dollar terms. So I guess what does that even mean? Um, yeah. Bitcoiners don't value dollars. Yeah. And well, except you guys, everyone values dollars because it's the frame of reference. Uh, the whole one BTC equals one BTC thing. Uh, no, like the, you, we all still value it in dollars. Bitcoiners actually believe that. Believe what? One BTC equals one BTC. I mean, I believe I believe that too, but like that still doesn't stop everyone from like looking at the Bitcoin chart in dollar terms. There's no what's the point of looking at the Bitcoin chart in Bitcoin terms? That's that's a dumb chart. It's that's just a, a flat line. line. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's the right perspective, but no, you're right. And the the whole point of me and Bitcoin Tina making that podcast is he thinks that Bitcoiners don't believe that. He thinks that Bitcoiners are going to try to sell the top and that they're going to, you know, they're going to value dollars over Bitcoins. Uh, And he personally thinks that a lot of them are going to get wrecked. Again, his two scenarios are scenario, Mm -hmm. you know, scenario number one is blow off top dip, right? That's, that's what is kind of, that's the deep consensus. Scenario number two is every 30% dip gets bought up and it just keeps going up and up and up. Scenario number three is similar to Walmart and Tesla, where it's flat, 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 completely reprices this year, and then just goes flat for the next four years. Um, And that's what he considers to be the hardest trade, because that's the hardest thing if you're trying to trade this thing to to actually pull Ah, off. That's what the hardest trade is. I'm only like halfway through the episode. Um, That's interesting. That's interesting. I feel like the, it, you know, we just get 30% corrections. And other than that, it's up and to the right. That feels like hopium to me. feels like hopium. You know, people like at the end of the day, too many people are going to get too wealthy too quickly. And like, that's where blow off tops always happen. Um, I, I really, I think, I think we are going to go into a blow, blow, uh, blow off top and then a quote unquote bear market. I just think it'll be severely muted on both sides. It'll be a, a muted blow off top and then a muted bear market, but they'll still be there. Yeah. I mean, I could see, I could see a blow off top and then a muted bear market. Um, again, I think that's the difference between going from illegitimate to legitimate is the, just that huge dump is not going to happen because people might actually value this thing instead of right. just, you know, thinking of it as like a GME Ponzi mm-hmm. where, yeah. um, you know, they're, they're going to make their 300 bucks per share and then who cares? Um, Mm -hmm. so, I mean, I don't know, we'll we'll see. It's, it's difficult to tell how much people actually are valuing this thing versus like just thinking it's a hype stock or whatever. Um, I, from what I've seen, like some people kind of like get the hardcore foundation, the radicalized, uh, opinion of, you know, what Bitcoin is and what, what crypto offers, 
but a lot of people just kind of see it as, you know, a new flavor of stock number go up. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's interesting. I don't have any, any more opinions. My only, my only opinion is we are in Coinbase listing token pump phase of the market. That's where I think we are. So 2017, how much is 2021 going to rhyme? Um, I mean, it's, it's, that's a, I don't, I don't really know what you mean by that, but other than like, I do think that like Uniswap is the new Binance. I do think that there's going to be a bunch of speculative mania around DeFi tokens. I think we're already seeing that. Um, and I think there's going to start to become so much noise in this space, so much signal in this space that it starts to drown out everything and all the signal just turns into noise. Um, I think we're going to get a flood of new entrants into this space to speculate on. So like if those are all, all, all things that rhyme with 2017. So to that degree, I think, yes, those that, that will be significantly resemble what we know of, of 2017. Um, what's, what are the key differences in your opinion? That the token tokens are coming before, after the labor and value was created, not before as with the ICO with an, an ICO, you would spin up a website and a white paper, and then you would get millions of dollars in funding. That's not going to happen anymore. We, we haven't seen any of that happening now. Um, the, the, uh, the only corollary, I mean, only we've seen I, people spinning up shit working code. So I guess that's yeah better. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like there is some labor and value first. And sometimes that code is completely shit, but we've also seen shit code get deployed and then fixed over the, over the long term, And then those applications turn into vibrant communities with a bunch of community members who think that the project is legitimate and worthy to be worked on. Um, and so I think that- Are you talking about paradigm- Sushi Swap? Sushi Swap is a good one. Um, uh, Cream has also had their uh, code heavily critiqued um, but yet it, it still has attracted a, an army of developers and community members. Um, I, th- I think that the stickiness uh, is going to, the Ethereum and DeFi is going to be a hundred times more sticky than the ICO mania was back in 2017. Uh, I think there's a lot more media and content in the Ethereum landscape than there, than there was back in 2017. There's a lot more reasons to stick around. Um, a lot of the tokens that I owned in 2017, I can't even remember the names of now. But also, but now a lot of the tokens I own now are also products that I use on a daily basis, right? Um, so I think there's a lot more sticking power this time around. So speaking of uh, the uh, the fleeting uh, stickiness of tokens, which tokens are you interested in these days? Just because hmm. even you know, even Wi-Fi, something that you were extremely interested over the summer of 2020, mm-hmm. like it seems like you're slightly less interested in. Like, uh, I do get a sense that you know, while Bitcoiners are like Bitcoin only, mm-hmm. and they're pretty fucking consistent, that uh, that you know, Ethereum's kind of have you know that their their tastes kind of evolve as the ecosystem evolves, if you will. Right. Yeah. And I feel like that's what you would expect. Like Bitcoin is meant to not evolve, right? Bitcoin is supposed to be the thing that stays the same, that is the rock that you can depend on no matter as the universe changes around it. Whereas Ethereum is like this DeFi ecosystem that is 
learning how to how to be right uh and so like where the energy from from wifey and, and urine kind of got drained a bunch of other applications have started to capture some of that similar energy um there's and now now that really the question is is like all this yield aggregation which is what yet why iron is like is that really a capturable thing or it does the yield actually hop from DeFi to protocol to DeFi protocol as like as the ecosystem develops and so the tokens that I'm list, uh, that I'm focused on are partly a part in the um, in the DeFi aggregation scene, um, but then and then there but there's also um, Sushi Swap, which is the the fork of Uniswap. I think is actually um, progressing and innovating in, in directions that Uniswap is not, uh, and has also fire. fostered a fantastic. And it's also on fire. It's also fostered a fantastic community. Um, I could go deeper down the the DeFi token rabbit hole if you want me to. I'm looking at. All I mean, I've been right I've been asking you for your DeFi shills for like three episodes now, so it's might as well uh, get an episode where I shut up long enough for you to actually give them. All right. Okay. So alpha alpha is the hot uh, Y earn 2.0, Urn 2.0 with yield aggregation, um, and it's it's leveraged yield farming. So it's complete product market fit, right? So you deposit your ether, and then people borrow your ether, and then they use the, that value to take leveraged yield farming positions. And so you can get somewhere between like eight to twelve percent yield on your on your ETH, which is fucking crazy. Um, so that's what alpha is about. Uh, SF, SFI is like a rent risk tranching thing. Uh, SFI is spice. Uh, and so like, if you, if you want, uh, to pay out, uh, interest in dollars, but have some people take low risks and receive low rewards. And some people take higher risks and receive higher rewards. You can do that with, with, uh, spice and SFI. Uh, those are kind of my two, like, uh, moonshot tokens. The ones I hope to do like a 10 X to hundred X. Um, let's see what else do I got? Um, Sushi, I already said, uh, and then, oh, of course, there's just SNX and Ave for like your your DeFi staples. Um, I feel like, yeah, I think just Alpha and SFI are kind of my 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 hidden gems that I have. So, I mean, I, I understand like, hey, Bitcoin's the rock. The Ethereum ecosystem is constantly evolving. There's always this like new hot thing that you know people want to mm-hmm. latch on to. Like, is that healthy? Like. At one point, you know, 30k hard cap Wi-Fi was the future. Like, don't fucking question it. Like, this is the thing. Now they're talking about, I guess today they had some vote to, you know, mint some more Wi-Fi for a dev fund to get world-class developers. Whatever narrative, you know, gets that done. Um, You're saying, you know, it's unsure if they're actually going to capture value. There's other things that are kind of capturing more of the energy. Like, Outside of, you know, insiders trading, like, you know, where's, where's the long game here? I don't know. I, f- I feel like, I feel like that's, that's a pretty simple answer. Like this is a, this is an arena. This is, this is Darwin's evolution as, as an arena. This is evolution on a, a time scale that moves so incredibly fast. Uh, and so like, sure, maybe the whole Ethereum ecosystem is completely like different in two years. But that's going to be as a result of like innovation development and and research and understanding. And it's going to be better for that reason. Like there are some things like MakerDAO is still one of the core pieces of Ethereum. That that thing tends to have pretty good sticking power. I also feel like Uniswap is also not going away. Uniswap sticking power is pretty, pretty strong. Ave sticking power is definitely proving itself. A lot of like the DeFi summers, the things that are just like 
less than nine months old, that stuff is still settling. Yeah. Um, but at some point, like we're going to latch on to certain levels of infrastructure in Ethereum and just like keep them for all of time. Like, like I said, Uniswap. Uniswap has been here since day one and it hasn't gone anywhere. Um, same thing with MakerDAO. MakerDAO is three years old now. Like that's pretty good. That's, that's so, all I mean, of DeFi's lifespan. I, I, I've seen your interest in MakerDAO like kind of plummet. Like, do you still participate so heavily? I know that there's so much more excitement kind of happening, but like, does that have long-term systemic issues? Well, I mean, MakerDAO, it's like the, at some point in time, these, some of these applications are going to just run as designed. And like, then the price of the asset kind of settles and becomes more tame. Whereas like all the excitement and like printing and speculative mania is happening elsewhere. Like the speculative mania isn't happening in MakerDAO. It's, it's like becoming more like Bitcoin, which, which is like what I said it was, would, would do like two years ago when you were skeptical on it, like two years ago, is that the whole point of these applications, these DeFi protocols, Ethereum included, is to settle and just be and just run as, as protocols. And so, I mean, I wouldn't say like maybe, maybe my interest in MakerDAO has waned, but my like commitments and beliefs about MakerDAO are still as strong as ever, if not even more strong because of all the Lindy that MakerDAO has gained in the last three years. Okay. I mean, I think that's a, a fair answer, but at the same time, like I just see Bitcoiners, like their commitment to Bitcoin has just increased exponentially and, you well, know, yeah, they don't have any Bit- other choice. <laughs> Maybe, but I, I think what Bitcoin represents is like a definancialization. So like, that's why I see like the connection there. Like, Hey, you know, you don't care about other things because the whole point is like, let's burn down the system and rewrite it based on like new heuristics. Mm-hmm. Whereas like, you know, I've, I've constantly said that DeFi, the Ethereum ecosystem is kind of skeuomorphic. It's kind of based on existing paradigms. Um, But I would would say it's the exact opposite. I would say DeFi is also the definancialization of the legacy world and becoming much more simple and much more reductive, not as simple and reductive as Bitcoin is, but it's much more reductive of a financial system than the the current financial system is. Yeah. I mean, I, I could, I could, uh, I could buy the argument that it is like you know ultimately reducing the current financial system to new primitives. But I could also see like it's just the early financial system, and it's it's going in the same direction as as the same fragile garbage that we uh, are seeing nowadays, where the the repo market is completely broken, and yeah. uh, you, you know you not only need intervention at the repo market level, but you need intervention at the brokerage level in order to keep this thing from blowing up. Uh, so I mean, I could see that too. Yeah. Um... Well, if that is the future that plays out, the difference there is that like as a transactor in the Ethereum economy, you always have the option to be independent and not be reliant on any one specific thing. Um, So like there's no one, no one should ever like force you to be in your walled garden in the way that that the legacy um, system forces you to be. Yeah, that's true. That's that's the bullish innovation there that comes with open source tech. Permissionlessness mm-hmm. and open source, that is very, very key. I think the other mm-hmm. thing is running your own hardware. I know Bitcoiners do that a lot. I know Ethereans do it a lot more than anyone in the legacy system. So it's absolutely a, mm-hmm. a step in the positive direction. Shall I wrap this up? Yeah, let's do it. All right, guys, you can follow the podcast at POV Crypto Pod. You can follow me at Trustless State, both on Twitter and on Bankless. Christian? 
You guys can follow me at CK Snarks and at Bitcoin Magazine. And Bitcoin 2021 just announced that we are officially moving to Miami June 4th Ooh, and 5th. Nice. Yeah, we we're saying goodbye to Los Angeles. Sorry, we uh, we have no patience for um, the insane lockdown measures that are happening there. And we are going to have an in-person event in the United States. So uh, June 4th and 5th in Miami. It's going to be hot. That's uh, good for our health, I think. And uh, yeah, I'm extremely excited. You can get your tickets at b.tc backslash conference. Hot. Awesome. It's up for you to decide.